So, have you ever thought, I deserve better? I serve you, God. I, I deserved the promotion. I serve you, God. I deserved the good relationship. God, I've been faithful. Why didn't I get recognized? I've been faithful, God. Why is it so hard and it's not working out? And then we're tempted to look across the fence. God, they're lost and all the good stuff's happening to them. They're lost, but they got the relationship. They're lost, but they got the promotion. I think we've all been at that place in our lives where we maybe voiced it, but probably hid it in our hearts. God, I feel like I deserved something else, something better because of the way I live, because I care about you. And I'm a little bit upset at how well it's going for people that don't care about you. Why did they get that? Why did it work out for them? And so that's exactly the question the psalmist is going to wrestle with today. You're not alone. In fact, probably universal in this room today, that we've had those feelings, we've had those experiences, we've had those wrestlings with God. And since the Bible's a real book for real people in the real world, it's had that, people in this book have had that experience too. And so let's look at how they wrestled with that so that we can find some hope for our cynicism. And we're going to have kind of, not intentionally, but a mini, a mini hope for series. So here it's hope for the cynic. Because we've all lived enough life to get just a little bit jaded. To look around at moments in our life and just see a little bit cynical because things didn't work out quite the way they should for us or things worked out really super well for them. And then uh, next week we're going to talk about hope for the depressed or the discouraged. Uh, In a few weeks we're going to talk about hope for the sinner, Psalm 51. And then there will be a couple of weeks that kind of tie into the same theme of hope for the anxious. And so as we go through the Psalms, it's a real book for real people in the real world. It's not a plastic book for plastic people in a plastic Bible world with plastic Bible figures where everything worked out. It's like the real deal that's sufficient to go through the real stuff. And I hope you'll see that. I hope you already know that. But I hope you'll see that especially uh, in the weeks ahead that there's very few things you've experienced or, or that you've processed through that God's people haven't processed through before. Um, and so with that, we, we, we started the Psalms out with these two framing Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And it was, blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord, right? So there's this favor of God, there's this satisfaction in God that comes if the book of God is our pleasure, our delight, our treasure. And that's attached to several of the Psalms we've done since then. And then in Psalm 2, blessed are those who find refuge in the divine Son, in the Messiah, in Jesus. And so we're blessed, we're satisfied, we're happy if we find refuge in Jesus. But there's a lot of times living in the real world where Psalms 1 and 2 feel like they get flipped upside down, aren't they? And it doesn't feel like blessing at all that I love this book. And it doesn't feel like blessing at all that I am connected to Jesus. In fact, it feels very upside down because I look out there and it's blessed are the wicked. Blessed are the proud. Blessed are those who go and get theirs and take theirs and live however they want to live and really don't care about you at all. They're blessed, but I'm, I'm struggling. 
So what do we do when Psalms 1 and 2 gets turned upside down? What do we do when the real world collides with what we think and how we define blessings should be? And the psalmist is going to wrestle with that exact question. He's going to wrestle with what it looks like when I look out there and it looks like the very opposite of what it should be. Now, one of the keys has already been thrown out there when I look out there. When I misdefine what blessing looks like, yes, I'm going to get a little cynical and a little jaded. But also sometimes it's legitimate. I'm going to look out there and I'm going to see people that are wicked and they're prospering and I don't get it. So what do I do with it? That's the question of the psalm. Let's listen. Uh, psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they, and they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when, will you, or when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. So, Father, just like we sang, more than all riches... Jesus is better. But we don't fully believe that. Would you make our hearts believe it? God, more than our sorrows, Jesus is better. Would you make our hearts believe that? And our song is not a song that comes to an end. It's an eternal song that Jesus is better. And will you make our hearts believe that? 
Father, I pray for wherever I and my brothers and sisters are on this journey of bitterness or envy or self-pity or wallowing or struggling, God, I pray wherever we are in, in the coming back to a realization of it's better, better is a day in your courts than thousand next well, better to dwell in the corner of your house than in the tent with the wicked. And so, Father, I pray, just reorient our hearts. God, if there's somebody down that path, wake them up. Turn the lights back on for them. God, if there are those that are just stuck and wrestling, would you visit them with your goodness? Would you help us climb again? Father, we pray for that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, slipping into and climbing out of envy and bitterness. Slipping into and climbing out of envy and bitterness. Um, and what you're going to find is it's a journey. You see a, you see a downward spiral. You see a, a layer after layer deeper and deeper into the pit of it. And then it's also layers coming out as they walk back out step by step. And, and so, the downward spiral of self-pity comes as we look at others and, compa- uh, and by comparing. The downward spiral... Uh, comes from looking at others and comparing ourselves with them. So when I get a little grumbly, and that does happen, when I get a little grumbly, the natural companion to that is I start looking out at other people. And, you know, I'm not looking at the homeless and comparing myself. And I'm not looking at where our friends, the Harrises, serve, the, the people that live in the village up there who work hard every day and, you know, they have what they need, but that's all they have. And I'm not comparing my lot in life to them. I'm always looking at the people that are a little more successful than me, my neighbors that have the little bigger house than me, the little newer car than me, the little more toys and, and, and vacations and, and, and things than me. And I look at them. And as long as I look out, and as long as you look out, because you're going to look at people that have more than you, you will never escape envy and jealousy and bitterness and self-pity. Because there is always going to be someone better. There's always going to be someone smarter. Always going to be someone prettier. Always going to be someone more successful. Always going to be someone with more money or more toys. Always going to be someone that got ahead or that is ahead of you in your career and in your industry and or, or whatever it is you're looking at. There's always going to be someone you look at like I want their relationship. Why don't I have that one? And as long as we're looking outward, our heart cannot escape this 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 uh, circular force that keeps us bound in there of jealousy and of of, of self-pity. And we find we get to this place where I want not just better, I want theirs. I want their job. I want their marriage. I want their relationship. I want their money. I want their house. I want their life. And then it's not very far until we get, but I really deserve it. They don't deserve what they have. I deserve what they have. And you feel as that force of circular, as it goes faster and faster, it pulls us tighter and tighter and deeper into it. And that's what the psalmist wants to help us break free from. So let's look at it as we, as we jump into the psalms. First, verses 1 and 2 are um, defining verses. These show that the psalmist has already been through this and come back to the other side. And so the psalmist at the beginning of the psalm is coming to you and saying, you don't have to go to the same place I went. I'm going to give you a truth that nailed into the ground that you can latch on to so that you don't have to go there. I've been there and it's awful and it's ugly and it's dark and you don't have to. 
What truth? Truly the Lord is good to Israel. Not just that God does good, not just that God gives good, it's that God is good, and he's good to a particular people, to Israel. Israel is God's Old Testament people. He chose them. He brought them from nothing to something. He made a covenant with Abraham that would set them up, and they would always be his. And they are his because of choosing. They're his because of covenant, and they belong to him. And so God is good to those who belong to him. God is good to those whom he's made covenant with. And so we are not Israel, but there are forerunners, the forebearers of this relationship with God. And God is good to his people. And if you believe God is good to his people, it answers a lot of other questions that the real world throws out at you. Because the real world is over and over again offering you something better. Offering you a better life. Saying that it is good to have this and it is bad to not have this. But if you really nail down this one truth, God is good and he is good to me. That it answers a lot of the questions that a fallen world throws at you. And that's what the psalmist wants to lay down for us as, as we wrestle through this. Truly he is good. To those who belong to him. And then he says to those who are pure in heart. The word for pure we've talked about really past several weeks. Unmixed, uncontaminated, undiluted. When it comes to a human's relationship to God. They are 100% sold out and devoted to God. There is no mixture in their heart's allegiance to God. There is no mixture of their devotion to God. They are 100% devoted, 100% faithful. Unmixed in their love and commitment to, to God. Those who are pure in heart. And what you're going to find throughout this psalm is that heart becomes a key word. It's mentioned six times in these verses. And so two things about the heart. The first thing as we look at the heart is that those who are pure in heart, the number one thing that shows is the relative unimportance of your circumstances. It does not mean your circumstances aren't real. They are not hard and they are not painful. It means that they're not the most important thing in your experience. Your heart is. The purity of your heart is. And so my, the relative unimportance compared to my attitude, my posture, my responses, my character, my life with God, the relative unimportance of my circumstances when it comes to this. The second thing I want you to see about the heart as we kind of launch into this is that it is, the heart is the control center of the life. The heart is the control center of your thoughts. It is the control center of your emotions. And so it is the control center that says, I will live under the truth of God's goodness in my life. Or it is the control center that will go sour and live in response to its circumstances. And so the purity of your heart will determine, do I live in the truth of God's goodness? Or do I let my heart and my life get soured up because of my experiences and my circumstances? God is good. Now look at the psalmist. That's true. But let me tell you what happened in my life. I almost slipped. The picture is standing on the edge of the cliff. I was standing over the edge of a cliff and I was so close to falling over. And the ground beneath me, it talks about the imagery, the ground beneath me began to give way. Like I was losing my footing. I almost went over. What almost dropped the psalmist off a cliff? What almost made him wreck his life? I was envious of the wicked. And why did the wicked prosper? That was the great wrestling that brought him to this place. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I want you to look at that verse. This is probably the biggest thing, studying this verse, is reading it my whole Christian life. 
the biggest thing that God hit me with, and it was in this verse right here. Like, I'm thinking, let's talk bad about the wicked. Let's say how bad they are. Let's say how proud they are. Let's say how much, how much they boast. And, and, and I could spiritualize that because they are. And, and, and God, uh, he opposes the proud. So it's okay for me to, to, to spiritualize my inside heart of bitterness because look at these bad, evil people. Look at their pride, God. Look how they boast against you, God. Surely we can just talk about them. Is that what the psalmist chooses to do? What you would think he's going to do is, let's understand why the wicked prosper, and that's exactly what he doesn't do. He says, look at my heart. How dare I look at them and their lifestyles and their possessions, and my heart want what they have instead of what I have in God. And the psalmist deals with his own heart very clearly and very frankly instead of them. Because you can always find somebody in the world worse than you. You can always find somebody out there that's proud and boastful and arrogant and and sinful. But if you use that to mask what what God wants to point out in your own heart, you're going to miss it. And so the psalmist is like, I was envious of that. I can't believe I was envious of that. But I envied the, the, the proud. I wanted what they had. And I was almost sunk. I almost slipped because of this question. Why did the wicked prosper? I'm faithful and it's hard. I'm faithful and things fall apart. I'm faithful and I'm stressed out. And then I look at people who don't care a lick about God. And from the looks of things, it is so easy for them. From the looks of things, they get everything they want. From the looks of things, their, their families are right. From the looks of things, their money is right. From the looks of things, they're more successful than I am. From the looks of things, more people follow them than follow me and listen to them than listen to me and like their posts versus like mine. And I was envious of what they had. And that's what was sinking me. And then he does give the perspective, right? He, he, he mentions the things he's wrestling with. Like, God, this doesn't seem to make sense uh, as I try to understand what's going on. Is that they are prosperous. They have plenty. They are popular. People turn to them, follow them. And they are at ease. And so that's the framework. There's a lot of imageries in here that we don't use a lot. Uh, And so, just to give you the overall framework of this chunk of verses, the psalmist's concern is, and and, and is bothered by, they are prosperous, they have plenty, they're rich, they're fat. We'll talk about that in a second, that's not an image we use a lot. Um, They're popular, people are magnetized to them, they are drawn to them, and everything is easy. And he says that despite the fact, God, that they're proud, despite the fact that they're wicked, despite the fact that they boast with their tongues, despite the fact that they wag their tongues against heaven, against you yourself, despite the fact that they live with, with, with tongues, that they're running over people and churning over people and, and, and pushing people down, and yet they're still prosperous, they're still popular, and they're still at ease. And that's the, the thing that the psalmist is couldn't reconcile before he went through this process. That was the question on his heart that brought him into envy, brought him into jealousy, and ended up in this this pit of of bitterness and self-pity. And so let's look at a little bit of of the image. And so they have no pangs, their bodies are fat and sleek, and they're they're not in trouble and they're not stricken. So prosperous and ease. 
So fat and sleek isn't generally a compliment in our culture. But in the ancient world, fat and sleek meant this. I have plenty of money, so I never miss a meal, which would not be true of the average day laborer. And not just miss a meal, I I, I get to eat plenty. And then sleek means I haven't worked out in the sun where it beat my skin to death over a lifetime. And so my skin is still smooth and, 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 and moisturized. So to be fat and sleek means I have plenty of money and my life is pretty easy because I don't work out in the baking sun that, that, melt, you know, that, that really does a number on my skin. So they're fat and sleek and then they don't have any pangs. They don't have any trouble. Nothing happens in their life bad. Now, again, this is from an outside view. <laughs> like, you don't have their keys. You don't go home with them. You don't see what happens behind the scenes. But from an outside comparison, it looks like things go really easy for them, and they have plenty. But they're also popular. So one of the hardest verses in this psalm to interpret is, is verse 10, both for translation reasons and because, like, what does it mean? Are they coming back to God? Is this like an insert? But here's you know, what we believe is the best interpretation of it. It is a popularity. It is the worship of success. It is the cult of personality operating in the ancient world, not just the modern social media world. And so the idea is that God's people see the successful, see the rich, see the famous, and they are magnetized to them. And, and, and that's the exact same thing that happens today. Rarely do I find fault with the athlete that I identify with. Rarely do I find fault with the movie star or the coach or the business leader or the whatever that I identify with. I want to wear their jersey. I want to be identified with them. I want to be part of the entourage. I want somehow to be identified with these successful people. We worship success. And when we worship success, we don't look for the moral failures. We don't look for the moral problems because we see the image. And we like the image and we want to be identified with the image. And so people are drawn to their prosperity. They're drawn to their success despite the fact that they beat people up with their mouths and they oppress people with their lives and they just truck over everything in their way. But we don't care. They're successful. That's why James, I think, is so direct about do not show partiality. Because when people are rich and successful around them, we tend to overlook the moral part of their life and just say, how can I get a little closer to them? Or when somebody has like a a, a position of status around us, we overlook the moral parts of their life because we want to be identified with them. We want to be closer to them. We want them to like us and accept us. And I think that's exactly what the psalmist is, is pushing against, that God's people are turning to them because they're rich and successful and have a level of fame. And they're turning to them and they don't find any fault in it. And then look at the next verse. And they say, how can God know? They say, is there any knowledge in the Most High? The least respected person in this, up to this point in the psalm is the Most High God. The person everybody wants is the rich, and the person that is disregarded is the Most High God. What a a stark contrast. The Most High God has been demoted, and the wicked, because of their success, has been elevated. And either we've jumped onto that bandwagon, or we look out and we envy that we're not the one at the top of that bandwagon. And that's the real stuff of our heart, isn't it? 
That's the real stuff we have to wrestle with. And so they're popular, they're prosperous, they're at ease. And that's how he kind of sums it up in in verse 12. These are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. And so what is the psalmist wrestling with? Because we're about to, to see the change as he starts to look at his own self. And he starts to see, starts to say things that are true in his heart that most of us wouldn't say out loud, but he does. What is his complaint? God, it's easy for them and it's hard for me. God, they have plenty and I have struggle. God, people like and follow them, but not me. And that's where you see the turn, right? And so I get to the point where I say before God, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. You know what he's saying? I have wasted my life serving you, God. I have wasted my life being faithful. I have wasted my life following. I've wasted my life being devoted to you. And the only way that is true, if the definition of why I follow God is to get ease and riches. You see that? If the definition, why do I want God? Why do I follow God? Why am I connected to God? If it has to do with I want an easy life and I want money, then Paul would say it, we of all men are most to be pitied. The psalmist would say it, I have wasted my time with all this stuff because I don't have the stuff out there. And now you see the problem of the psalmist, right? He is looking out there to define blessing. He's looking out there to define reward. He's looking out there to find prosperity. And he doesn't have what the definition out there is. All this psalmist has to his name is Psalm 19. And it's not enough for him. Because there's a whole other definition of treasure that we talked about last week, isn't there? There is a whole other definition of reward. Psalm 19 says, More to be desired than gold. Much fine gold. Sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Do you see how far the psalmist has come? He's come from someone who says, I have got your book, I have you, and if I have your book and I have you, then mountains of gold don't compare to that. If I have you, then there is a reward and a treasure because in your presence is the fullness of joy. If I have you. But isn't this the spiral of self-pity and bitterness? You aren't enough. Because I don't have that relationship. You aren't enough because I don't have an, the more money. You aren't enough because I'm not as successful as I think I should be. And they are. It has been a waste of time, God, to follow you. And to wash my hands in innocence. It's funny. In Psalm 26, the sincere version of this prayer is offered. I wash my hands in innocence and I go around your altar proclaiming thanksgiving to your name, telling of all your wondrous deeds. In Psalm 26, the psalmist is like, the fact that I get to have washed hands that declare how grateful I am to you and how amazing you have worked in my life and among my people, that is such a thrill to my life. But not to the heart that's filled with self-pity. Not to the heart that's gone down to the bottom of the septic tank and wants to splash around there for a while in their self-pity and in their wallowing. No, I'm missing out and this has been a waste. Because I have trouble and they don't. 
You see the words, same words. I've been stricken, they're not stricken, and I've been rebuked. One thing I want you to get from this before we transition to the next point is this. The psalmist is 100% real with where he is. That is a starting place, not a stopping place, but that is a starting place of getting back to God. If you think you can kind of hide and spiritualize the, the depths of your heart that are complaining and grumbling and want better, like, God knows. And so, like, take off the, the, the mask, take off the, the acting and the play, and, and just set this realness before God. God, I'm at the place where I don't think it's even worth following you. And that's exactly the place where the psalmist stops. As he gets to this depth, this pit of self-pity, and when he finds himself there, he stops. The Bible is a real book. God is a real God. And the starting place back is when you are real from the depths of your heart in front of the heart of God. And it's a starting place of returning back from bitterness and envy and self-pity. And we need that more than we need the wicked to stop being prosperous. A lot more than we need that. And so as he transitions from the downward spiral of self-pity through comparison, stabilization comes as we worship God and embrace our responsibilities to each other. Stabilization comes as we worship God and embrace our responsibilities for each other. I think the funny thing, well, not the funny, the interesting thing in this psalm, what stops his spiral is not love for Jesus. What stops his spiral is not a thought of God. You know what stops his spiral? He looks at his kids. He looks at the generation around him, and he thinks about what it will do to them if he falls. If he opens his mouth this way. See, here's the deal. Sin's effects and sin's consequences will never stay confined to you. They will always splash against the lives of the people around you. And yeah, it gets a little bit bigger and a little bit more intense the older you get and the more relationships you're bound into. But even for you, your sin will splash against your parents, splash against your home, splash against the church, splash against your friends. For college students, it'll splash against your ministries, and it'll splash against the discipleship groups you're a part of. It'll just splash against the church. And then, your sin will splash against your family in very hot and very painful ways. But you want some good news? Faithfulness effect and faithfulness's consequences also splash on the people around us. Our faithfulness never confines to just us either. Our faithfulness will splash up against our family and splash up against the church and splash up against our Sunday school classes and splash up against the people we minister with and to. And the people around me need my faithfulness. The people around you need your faithfulness. Men, if you're married, you have a wife looking to you and they need your faithfulness. If you have kids, you have a... I have five people in my home that look and they need me to be faithful to what I say. They need me to be faithful to my marriage and faithful to my parenting and faithful to, faithful to my work and ultimately faithful to God. So that what I say and what they see actually have some, some credibility to them. Even if they don't desire. Even if they're not there yet. Is my faithfulness and my words saying the same thing. And men, this is a big challenge to us. 
before you walk into that temptation, before you allow yourself to go that next step, before you take that path, stop and think, who's looking? And yes, ladies as well. And yes, youth and college and everything in between as well. Who's looking? Who's going to be undone when you step out? Who is going to be broken when you leave? Who is going to be broken when you're not true to the things you've said mattered and they don't matter to you anymore? Who is going to be devastated by that choice? And that's where the psalmist starts. You would think he's going to start with, man, I had this awesome experience with God and things got better. No. I looked at the generation of your children. And so look at this. As he, he has two steps back or, or two steps of stabilization. The first step, he says in verse 15, if I had said this, if I said I would speak this way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. If I decided to stand up here and say I've wasted my life and it wasn't worth it, my children, my wife, you would have been betrayed. And your understanding of God would be at least parts of it broken over that, shaken over that, because I'm not going to be faithful anymore. And if I had said that, I would have betrayed a whole generation of your people. If I had said that, I would have had a whole other generation of your people and of your family. I would have betrayed them. And they would, not, they would not have a pillar of faithfulness to look to and stay tight to. Because here's the deal. Courage begets courage. Faithfulness begets faithfulness. Cowardice begets cowardice. And so if we don't have a generation, I'm going to just get on a soapbox for a second. If we don't have a generation of men that find a spine all of a sudden, then we're going to continue to live in a culture with no spine. If we lose a generation of men who will not say there are convictions worth giving my life for, then we're going to continue to live adrift in a convictionless world. And so is there anyone that's willing to say there's a book that's true, there's a God that's true, there's a gospel that's true, and it's worth giving my life for, and I'm going to stand here. If you hate me, I'm going to stand here. If you love me, and we are going to let courage beget courage beget courage out of our lives as opposed to compromise and cowardice and weakness and mushiness just rippling out layer after layer after layer. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) If I had spoken this way, if I had let my self-pity pour out on you, I would have betrayed you, but I can't betray the people around me. But you see, he still hadn't figured it out. I still, it was a wearisome task, he says. I I, I still don't get it, God. But I know I can't go there. I know I can't take that step off the cliff. I know I can't slip from here. There's people counting on me. So how does he find the answer? Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. This is where worship comes in. He did not mentally reason himself out of this. He did not mentally walk through truth out of this. He encountered God. The the sanctuary, the place of the holy, was the place where God's people gathered to offer their sacrifices. The, The sanctuary was the place that represented the physical manifest presence of God in the life of Israel. And so we gathered with God's people in God's presence. And that's when the light came on. When I see the eternality of God, then I see how temporary this, this fame mountain is. When I see the sovereign rule of God over every atom of creation, then I see how small this 
thing is. And when I see the goodness of God and taste and see God is good, not just mentally say God is good, when I taste the goodness of the Lord and see that He is good, now I understand the answer. What's the answer? I discerned their end. He is eternal and everything they live their life for will be undone. Everything that they spent their life on and for and accumulated and amassed and all of their followers, once they're gone, is just dust left over. It's like Solomon says, vanity of vanities. Like, I left dirt behind. And so... He's going from the place where he was like, I've served you in vain, God. I've wasted my life, God, until he walks into worship. And when he worships, he's like, wait a second. All the stuff we can accomplish, all the fame we can accomplish, and, and all the popularity we can accomplish, and all the ease that we can have in this life, that's, that's wasted. There's an end. And it all unravels, and it's all undone. And, and, and I guess you could, but in general, you get buried six feet deep in about a coffin-wide hole, and nobody dumps your house in there with you. Nobody, nobody like, cashes in your bank account and piles it in there. Wouldn't do a lot of good. And it all turns to dust at the end. And so when I saw God and the eternal destiny of His people, and I had this perspective to say, this isn't what matters, and this isn't what lasts. And then he has three reorientations as he wraps up. One in this point, two in the next. The first reorientation is towards his understanding of the wicked. He was like, they have it so easy. They have it, they're so prosperous. Everybody loves them too. I'm not the one on a slippery edge of a cliff. They're living their whole lives in slippery places. They're driving a truck up the mountains with an ice-covered slope, and they're just sliding around, waiting to go off the, the edge at any point. And they may go off the edge today, and it's eternal ruin, or they may go off the edge 30 years from now. But they're the ones in slippery places, not me. I'm standing on the edge of the cliff thinking I'm about to fall off while the sovereign hand of God holds me, while they are careening around cliffs, not realizing how slippery it is, the place they are. And there, in an instant, will face ruin. I think ruin is such a great picture. Because the, the image of the wicked here is like they've built these great palaces. They have a mansion. They certainly have a nicer house than me. And they have this nice, pretty, big house. And in an instant, it becomes the kind of ruins that you pass on the side of the road. Maybe a few history buffs care about. But for the most part, it's like, huh, wonder what they used to be. Uh, the, the, house, or the, yeah, the, the house we rented when we first got here. When you would turn on the street, there was this little country home in the woods there. Clearly nobody cared about it or lived in it in a while, and so trees were just growing up through it. And that's the picture of ruins, a big pretty house that at the end just grows over and becomes ruins that nobody cares about anymore. And what you'll find is either now, like, they're facing ruin now. That's kind of the way the world works. From the outside, family's good. From the outside, money's good. From the outside, they're not stressed. They're not troubled. No problems. Nobody really lives that way. So likely now there are areas of devastation and ruin in the wake of their lives. Like they've marched over the top or broken some things in their lives up to this point. But if not, there will be a moment where it all comes down and turns to sand. They're in slippery places. They're the ones that are in ruin, not me. They're the ones that have wasted their life, not me. 
And they'll be destroyed in a moment. And then the last word I want to pick up on is when the Lord arouses, he'll despise them. When the time comes, they will have no weight and no importance in the eyes of God. He won't hear their cries. They will be estranged from him. They will be separated from him forever. Which is the exact opposite of what's true in your life. You will be welcomed. They will be estranged. You will be heard. They will be ignored. You will have an honor for all of eternity given to you. And they will be despised forever. But it takes a reorientation of worship to reorient what really matters, what really has value. And that's what the psalmist has done, a reorientation of worship. Being here is the great reorienting time of your life. Maybe it's a week of temptation, and this is what God uses to reorient and wake you up. Maybe it's a week of grousing and grumbling and self-pity, and this is the moment meant to wake you up. Church, Sunday school, community, microgroups, connection to other believers. These are the reorienting moments God's put in your life to just kind of let you have the light turned back on so that you don't go down and down and down into the depths of that place, but that you're able to reorient. So commit to being in places that reorient you. Commit to being around people that help you reorient to what's real and true. And then the last step, the ladder back comes as we repent and remember God's ongoing saving work. The latter back comes as we repent and remember God's ongoing saving work. Uh, this week I was reading Psalm 105. I don't know if I'm on, on schedule behind ahead of my Psalm 60 challenge, but that's where I was. Psalm 105 I'm reading, and it's basically this history of Israel. And so, you know, here's what happened with, um, with Joseph. Here's what happened with Jacob. And it just goes through the early history of Israel. And you know how it ends? Praise the Lord! Like, that's not generally how I read my history book. But that's how the psalmist did. Why? Why do you say praise the Lord at the end of a history? Because you're not looking at history. You're looking at, look, God's activity. This is what God did. Here's where God worked. Here's what God's up to. Uh, a guy named Henry Blackaby, an experiencing God, introduced me to the concept of spiritual markers. And basically what it was is when you have a meaningful time with God, when you, when you have a, a you know, guidance or wisdom, that ha- a decision that comes from God, or a, a meaningful time where you encountered God or God did something in your life, you just write it down as a spiritual marker. And what you're able to do for the next decision is, hey, look, here's how God's answered. Here's what God's done. Here's the trajectory of my spiritual life. Let's see. What you're also able to do, and what's so great about it, is, is you can read back through it when like, it's dark and I don't feel it and I feel distant and I don't know, God, are you even there? And God, are you going to answer? Is you can read back through it and then you can say, in the midst of darkness with confidence, God has and God will. Now, I can't tell God what he's going to do in any circumstances, but I know God's going to be there. I know God's going to be good. I know God's going to get me through it. And so whatever it is, I can have this perspective of saying, here's what's true next about God. And that's what the psalmist is able to do here. And so reorientation number two, as we get into it, reorientation number two is to, to have a fresh understanding of himself. You see, I, like, I almost slipped. I really got to the place before you, God, where I was like, it's not, it, it was in vain, it was wasted for me to serve you and to be innocent and to be faithful. And then the light comes on and my heart got stabbed by it. I was bitter and you pricked my heart. This is what we call conviction. It is when God stabs your heart with your sin, not because you got caught, but because you did it, and he stabs your heart with it, and you feel this conviction that leads to confession, and that leads to repentance, where you turn from that way to a new way. And that was the reorientation, and as he went through this process of conviction, look what happens. 
Here's what I know about me now. He asked the question this way. We'll get to the imagery in a second. How could I have been so stupid? Kids don't say stupid. It's a bad word. But that's what he says about himself. How could I be this stupid? And they'll put it in the imagery of the text. I was like an animal in my understanding of you. I was brutish like a beast in front of you, God, when I thought that out there is what mattered and out there is what's valuable and you weren't. God, I was like an animal. And then he has the, or, or, yeah, I was like an animal, so he was convicted and he repented. And I want you to notice, though, did the psalmist grumble and complain? Yes. Is that sin? Yes. But what he does is he pulls on the strand of that outer symptom, and he doesn't start till he gets to the heart. So did he complain? Yes. So what are you complaining about, psalmist? Well, they're getting all the good stuff, and everything's easy, and I deserve, deserve better. Now we're a deeper level than just I'm grumbling and complaining and grousing. I'm now at the level where I think I deserve better than the sovereign God's chosen to give to me. Keep pulling, keep pulling. Why do you deserve better? And then you get to the rock bottom. God, I've wasted my time serving you. Now you're at a place you can repent. You see the difference between repenting that, ah, oh, I just was grumbling today, that was stakes, to when you get down to the heart and say, God, I actually said and believed that I wasted my life with you. Now you have something to repent of. And so don't let the surface symptom end your repentance. Pull the string until it unravels and you get to see the heart behind it. Because that's the way back. That's the reorientation. And then the final reorientation is towards God and his presence. Now he gets to declare what's true. Now he gets to say what's real. Now he gets to take his past with God and declare it over his present and future with God. Because this is what's real. And what does he say? Despite the fact that I'm such an idiot, God. Kids don't say idiot. Despite the fact that I was so dumb, God. I'm continually with you. That's what's true. You didn't leave me for a second. That's what's true. Your presence is what matters. That's what's true. And you grabbed me by the right hand and said, when I saw it, I'm about to slip off and I'm going to wreck everything. You can't jump. There's a sovereign hand holding you. You held me by your right hand and you guide me with your counsel. And so what does my life past look like? Saving work of God. What does my life present look like? I live in the presence of God. I'm continually with him and he's continuing with me and he does not leave. He holds me so that I can't escape, that I'm clutched in his hand and nothing can get me out. And he leads me. And so I spend all of my present days on this earth in the presence of God, held by God and led by God. But what about the end? Same word, by the way, as verse 17. Afterward, you'll take me to glory. I discerned their end. It's ruin. I discerned their end. It's destruction. What does my end look like? Afterward, at my end. The God who has led me is the God who will receive me into the eternal glory that awaits me. I discerned their end, and the light came on. I discerned their end, and now I have an answer to the question of why. And then he goes through just a, a lot of other great truths. But look, the, the wicked strut their mouth against heaven and earth. But when I look at heaven, what do I want besides you? And then when I look out over the earth, I don't have a desire. It's not you. 
the total opposite. And I just want to hit these, the last verses as we wrap up. Psalm 2, blessed are those who find refuge in the Messiah. Verse 29, I have made the Lord God my refuge. And now he's able to speak again. And what does he speak? That I may tell of all your works. Think about the difference if he had stopped back there in verse 15. And he said, you know what? I am going to tell people I've wasted my life. I don't want this anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. This is a waste of time. And I think it's a waste of your time too. There are Christians who have done that publicly on social media, you know, by about a dozen over the past year. And how many people did they shipwreck? How much boldness did they give to the people that said, see, this stuff isn't true? But we're not going to be those people. What if the psalmist had stopped there? He would just be another of these guys who had a moment of internet fame to be never heard from again because nobody cares. The name of the wicked will rot. But since he went through this process and he didn't stay there, what can he do? I've rediscovered God. And now I have a word from God for you. And I will tell about God's work to you. And I will now encourage your faithfulness, not betray it. Because I've now encountered this God and and rediscovered what's true about this God. And I just want you to know it. And so what does he do in verse 1? God is good. Don't go the way I went. God is good. You don't have to go through this process. A few practical things as as we wrap up. Be honest with God about where you are. It's not spiritual to hide it. Now, it's not spiritual to stay there forever either, but it's not spiritual to hide it. Like, you're not, you're not earning points with God because of your fig leaves. It's been tried before. It didn't work out. And so get before God and pour your complaint out. Start there. Don't stay there. Start there. God, here's what's true. I, I, I don't understand why... why relationships haven't worked out. I don't understand about kids. I don't understand about money. I don't understand about jobs. I don't understand about, uh, about ministry titles. I don't understand about why things are going so bad for me and it's so hard for me out there. I don't understand that, God, because I feel like I'm doing them you know, faithfully under Jesus the best I can. Pour that out and then listen to it. He's a big enough God with a big enough salvation to hear what's really going on in your heart, and he already has. Second, prioritize worship, both public and private. Sometimes it's here as we sing, or here as you hear, or as we pray, that the light can come back on, and you can reorient your perspective from out there is what matters to up there is what matters. Sometimes it's in your private worship that that happens. Sometimes it's within your ear, within a community of people talking about the word where it happens. But the biggest temptation is to pull away. And the biggest need is to press in. So press into community in those times. Press into worship in those times. Don't drift from it. It's when you gather with God's people and it's when you enter into God's presence, focusing on it, that lights tend to come back on. And then the last one, confess about self and about God. Yes, confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive it. Yes, pull the strand all the way to the heart. Like, what is your heart really saying about God in that moment? Say it. Confess it. But I think we stop there. I don't want you to stop there. I want you to practice the discipline of saying some true things about God as the end point of your repentance. God, I've sinned. God, this was wrong. God, my heart was actually saying, what a waste to serve you. Now, here's what's true. 
and you start disciplining your heart and disciplining your soul that the end of repentance is what's true about God, not just removing sin. And you put truth in the place of lies. So if you find yourself in a hole, what do you do? Stop digging. So maybe you're at a place where you need to stop digging. If you've stopped digging, you're at a place where maybe you just need to look up out of that hole and see God. It's a reorientation of worship. And if you've seen that glimpse of God, he will grab you and you grab him and you start walking back. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, rescue us from our own foolish hearts. Rescue us. We don't want to see the wicked prosper, but more than that, we don't want to see our hearts wallow like you're not the treasure. So turn our hearts back, Father. We pray, pray, turn our hearts back. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, I just want to first challenge you with this. The wicked people in the world need Jesus. But you know who else needs Jesus? Good church-going people that don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Is that you? Have you ever been convicted of your sin, that your sin separates you from a holy God? There is no way back through your church and your religion and all your stuff. And it is only when you turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus and only Jesus to save you, that you will be saved. But all who call upon the name of the Lord will be. Do you need to do that? Do you need to feel that conviction? Do you need to turn now? Do you need to put your faith in Jesus now? Write it on a note. Come bring it to me. We'll set up a time to talk and walk through that together. Or maybe you find yourself in that spiral. And you find the footing underneath you is slipping. And you find yourself struggling with, why is this happening? You find yourself struggling with, why is it going so well over there? And I can't catch a break. And you just need to come and confess that to the Lord. Invite Him into that with you. Do it. You can do it here. You can do it right where you are. Or maybe you've just gotten to a place where you're stuck. I've stabilized. I'm not digging, but I'm just stuck. And I can't get out of this. Declare what's true. Do it here. Declare what's true about God. Do it where you are. That's the way back. God, here's what's true. Bring some people around you. Here's what's true. Let's stand and sing as we close out and you respond how the Lord is leading you.